Last week, we learned that Western intelligence got something right. Putin was planning a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. There was one thing they got wrong, though. Western intelligence services thought that after Putin invaded, the Ukrainian army would collapse almost immediately. This has not happened, which has opened up both a surprisingly hopeful, but also an unpredictable and, frankly, terrifying dynamic where Vladimir Putin has, has gone so far as to threaten nuclear war. I'll be joined in a moment by Paul Rogers to discuss. And in the second half of the show, I'll be joined by my colleague Ash Sarkar. We are on day five of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and Vladimir Putin has already threatened nuclear war. The escalation followed a failed attempt by Putin to take Kyiv amid a stronger than expected resistance from Ukraine. Far from seeing the immediate collapse of the Ukrainian forces, they have managed to hold back Russian advances who are yet to gain control of any cities. Russian convoys have been vulnerable to aerial attack. And that successful resistance has inspired Western states to increase their support for Ukraine. NATO countries are upping their supply of weapons to the Ukrainians, while a freeze on Russian central bank assets has led to the value of the ruble falling 30%. And all this takes place while popular mobilization in Ukraine has inspired the world. They've been led by President Vladimir Zelensky, who in the face of assassination threats is standing firm. Good morning to everyone, Ukrainians. Lately, there has been a lot of fake information online that I call on our army to lay down arms and to evacuate. Listen, I am here. We will not lay down the weapons, we will defend our state because our weapon is our truth. And the truth is that this is our land, our country, our children, and we will defend all of that. That's all that I wanted to tell you. Glory to Ukraine. But amid the euphoria, there is a cold blooded logic at play. As Ukrainian resistance denies Putin a quick win, there's every chance he'll resort to an ever more bloody war. We've already seen some evidence of this today in the eastern city of Kharkiv, where barrages of rockets were fired into the city. City authorities say at least nine people were killed in that attack. The Kyiv Independent is also reporting that Russia have used a thermobaric bomb in eastern Ukraine. This kind of weapon, also called a vacuum bomb, draws in oxygen from the surrounding atmosphere to create a high-temperature explosion. The Ukrainian Ministry of Health has reported 352 civilian deaths so far, including 14 children. It's all a context in which there were terminally low hopes for a meaningful outcome at today's peace talks in Belarus. And in New York, Ukraine's UN ambassador gave this advice for Putin on what he could do next. We have been prompted to call for an emergency special session as the level of the threat to the global security has been equated to, the, to that of the Second World War. Or even higher, following Putin's order to put an alert Russian nuclear forces. What a, what a madness. If he wants to kill himself, 
He doesn't need to use nuclear arsenal. He has to do what the same, what, what the guy in, in Berlin did in a bunker in May 1945. To discuss the latest developments in Putin's war on Ukraine, I'm joined now by Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. I want to begin on, on sort of general terms. We're going to look in specific details at some of the, the past developments. But first of all, how, how dangerous do you think this, this situation that we're in right now is? So we can come back later on to this nuclear issue. But essentially, uh, the Russians appear to have had a particular plan, and that was require them to take Kiev early to basically remove the Ukraine government from power. And that would demoralize Ukraines right across the country. They were also going to take a lot of territory in the south and southeast and also in the whole Donetsk area. They'd done a fair bit of the latter. They failed conspicuously in the former. And as a consequence, we're in very uncertain times. We simply don't know what Putin will do. But given his previous behavior, it's going to be very difficult to envisage any sorts of talks. The one thing we don't know, apart from everything else, is how China is going to react in the coming days. The indications are that Beijing is not happy with the way things are going. And that may be significant because Beijing is probably the only state in the world that has serious influence with Putin at the present time. So we'll, we'll talk about the international response, in, in, including China. The reason we're in this situation now, which looks very different to what we expected it to be at the end of last week, is that Russia has, has not advanced quickly, as you suggest they, they were planning to, which has upped up the pressure. And I want to talk about the weaknesses that seem evident in the Russian invasion plan, because it, it has surprised me. And what's been most surprising is how Russia have advanced military convoys without having control of airspace. That's left Russian vehicles vulnerable to drone strikes. The Ukrainian Air Force say they have 20 of these drones, a sign of how their military has strengthened since Russia's previous invasion in 2014. This is the current state of play in terms of land controlled by either side. The cities which are under most pressure at the moment is Kyiv and Kharkiv, but yeah, the, the Russians haven't advanced by nearly as much as they would have hoped to by this point. Paul, are you surprised at what seem like Russian failings in this invasion so far? Did we overestimate their, their ability? I am, but in fact, in the military journals, there were a couple of examples, one particularly in Jane's Defence Weekly a couple of weeks ago, uh, suggesting that in fact the way the Russians were getting their forces together would not prove adequate uh, to certainly occupy the country and uh, essentially defeat very determined opposition. If Russia had wanted to do that, then it would have had to mobilize all its forces. It would have to put the country on an entire war footing. And they never did that. And it seems to me that what they thought was going to happen was that there would be a relatively easy path from the north through to Kiev and around the south and the east. In other words, they underestimated what the Ukraines might do. But in a sense, worse than that, they got into a mindset where they thought the whole process would be relatively straightforward. Very interesting echoes of the Iraq war and the American experience and other wars that you can mention recently. And I was overestimating the position. Now, the, what has been a surprise to many Western analysts, but not all, as I say, there are some who are pointing this out uh, and saying that, you know, they would have no trouble taking the Donbass region. They would probably have no trouble in increasing their hold over the southern part of uh, Ukraine, including the key, uh, the, the key ports. What they would not be able to do 
would be to actually take over the capital city and occupy the country. To occupy a country with 40 million people plus, with sort of plenty of borders with Western states, would actually be very tricky. I think the Russians, well, not the not Russians as a whole, but uh, the, the Russian leadership actually thought this would be relatively straightforward. One must also remember that, you know, within Russia, there are about 3 million Ukrainians. There are huge numbers of connections, family connections between Russia and Ukraine. And I think Putin has this idea in his head that Ukraine is part of Russia and everybody should, and indeed does realize it. And that is not the case. I'm afraid I think there's a, been a lot of hubris here. But as you were saying, it is also down to the surprising level of the resistance on the Ukraine side. I think now that we have a very dangerous situation because it is pretty clear that the Russians will only be able to even take Kyiv uh, if they're prepared to use far more force. There's one indication recently they've already started to move troops in from Belarus that weren't intended to be moved in yet, which gives you some indication of, I think, the predicament they are in. The one thing I would say is though these are incredibly uncertain times with all kinds of information coming from many different quarters. So everything, I mean, you were saying this at the start, Michael, everything has to be sort of couched in terms of one isn't quite sure. But overall, it is reasonable to say it is not going according to the Kremlin's plan. I read a sort of what I found quite a persuasive theory or hypothesis, which was to say, if you want to plan a full-blown war, which it seems you know Putin would have had to have done to win in as, as quickly as he wanted to, given the strength of the Ukrainian forces, that would take a lot of planning with a lot of people. And because of the way this was conducted, whereby Putin was denying they were going to do it for, for weeks and months, it must have only been a few people in, in very high positions of command who knew about it, which meant that it was very difficult to plan a total war. You mentioned resistance. Let's talk about that in more detail. The popular resistance to Putin's invasion has been immense. The Ukrainian government has been arming citizens. According to the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK, some 18,000 weapons have been distributed so far. Ukrainians have also been making stockpiles of less conventional weapons. We've seen Molotov cocktail making workshops held in towns and cities across the country. And a brewery in Lviv has switched from making beers to making bombs. We send them to our barricades in Lviv. We are trying to send as many as we can to the areas near Lviv. We send some to Kyiv too. I hope they get there because we later learned that a bridge en route has been blown up. There should be no bloodshed. But what they are doing now is beyond war. It is war terror. It is impossible to describe. I have a lot of friends in other places, and the stories they tell me are simply horrific. It is a horror that must be stopped. The best way to stop it is not arms and more bloodshed, but words. But if words do not work, we will use everything. We will either be victorious or there will be total collapse, capitulation. Capitulation is not acceptable. After capitulation, they will face partisan war. There is no way they can win. They can only win if they destroy us all. And this is not possible.
Physical resistance is being combined with the symbolic kind. Ukrainians in Berdyansk, in the southeast of the country, were filmed singing their national anthem to occupying Russian troops. Paul, how much, how much do you think this resistance matters? Obviously, you know, it's, it's really inspired everyone, you know, across Europe and, and the world. It's clearly surprised Vladimir Putin as well. The worry, though, in a way, though, would be that, you know, the stronger the resistance, the stronger the fight back. Yes, and I think that it would be normally in uh, Vladimir Putin's character and more weapons of different sorts would be used. I mean, you mentioned there has been some use of thermobaric weapons already. That is not surprising. It's a weapon system which would particularly of use, if I can use that term, in uh, shelters, in bunkers and the rest. Russia produces quite a number of different sorts. So do the Americans. Britain doesn't produce thermobaric weapons, but we buy them from the Americans. We've used them in Syria. But they are, they are very effective in certain circumstances. And basically, in urban warfare, they can be really devastating. That's an indication. But you found that in the, in the more recent Iraq war in 2003, when the U.S. forces came under very heavy fire, sniper fire and the rest, they used huge firepower in return. You might get, you know, a building from which a sniper is operating. They just call in air power and destroy it. So that is a, a kind of pattern of war which is true in virtually any conflict and certainly would be true even more so in Grozny in the Second Chechen War. So that is the way that Putin would go. But the problem is that uh, even he or certainly the people around him will recognize the way the international mood is changing. And if he doesn't, then the Chinese will. And essentially, I think it's, it's going a lot wider, quite apart from all the other moves being made against Russia, which may well have an effect given time. This is almost at the sort of psychological level that the essentially Putin has made a mistake, we think, and it's going to be very difficult to get out of that without losing face, which means, incidentally, that the one thing you have to do, and against, it goes against the grain, is if there can ever be negotiations, there have to be some concessions from this side, from the Ukraine side. That is not appeasement. That is basically what has to be done in these circumstances, because we got ourselves into a heck of a mess. And at least in part, that was the way that Russia was treated in the 1990s, which had a very big effect on the people of Putin's generation. I suppose the question would be, what would that concession look like? I mean, I was very much on the same page before this full-blown invasion was launched that, you know, some sort of concessions could be made, but you've now got a real popular movement. Ukrainian nationalism seems to be like a real popular widespread thing. Putin doesn't seem to be willing to accept anything other than wholesale, you know, as, as that man was saying in that clip, making those Molotov cocktails, he won't accept anything other than Ukraine sort of just surrendering everything. So do, do you see any kind of path to negotiations? Obviously, there were some in, in Belarus today, they appear to have, have broken down. Well, I don't at the moment, but I think we've actually got to be very realistic about what the alternative would be. As of now, I think the, the most likely forecast is that the Russians, given no change in attitude and no change in negotiating possibilities, they will increase their forces, bring in more troops, and ensure by some means or other, Kharkiv and also Kyiv 
will be taken, eventually Kyiv as well, that basically they will then face all kinds of opposition, partisan right through, but clearly from the Ukraine military and maybe even units of the Air Force. And that is going to be dragging them down. And then you will have all the popular opposition as well. You will also have essentially more and more support, physical support, including light arms of particular kinds coming in from the very wide Polish border alone, if not some of the other borders. So in other words, one will get into a very deep, very grim war. I don't think the Russians, even they will be able to, sorry, the Russian army, I have to be very careful here. We are not talking about the Russian people. I think the Russian armed forces will probably even have to draw back from wreaking the kind of destruction they did on Grozny, which was absolutely appalling. And so the problem is you will get somebody like Putin, if there isn't a change, he really will get more and more frustrated and angry and use stronger and stronger methods. And that is when the worst could happen. That would be some sort of ultimatum to people putting the supplies in through the Polish border, saying to them, you either stop or we will really seriously escalate. That obviously would mean the risk of small-scale tactical nuclear weapons. I don't think we're anywhere near that, and I don't think there's any great risk of a nuclear confrontation now. But that would be where we would be. So it's a long-winded answer to your question, Mike. What I'm saying is there has to be another way found, and that way does have to involve some kind of negotiations, bringing other people in, bringing the UN in, and also using all the back channels, and Beijing may be important in this, to convince leaders within and around Putin that there has to be some sort of way found and implying that some sort of compromise can be reached, even though it may take a very long time, because the alternative uh, is essentially an utter disaster all round. Let's get on to talk specifically about the nuclear threat. This is what Vladimir Putin said on Sunday. Top officials of leading NATO countries are making aggressive statements about our country. Therefore, I'm ordering the Minister of Defence and the Chief of the General Staff to put the strategic nuclear forces on special alert. It's difficult to know how seriously we should take Russia's heightened nuclear alert. Michael McFall was the, um, the US ambassador to Russia from 2012 to 2014. So he tweeted, the people who know Putin the best, people I know in Russia are worried about his recent nuclear statement. The people who know him the least are saying it's cheap talk. Very, very concerning there. But the consensus from NATO seems to be that this is a bluff and they're willing to risk escalation by continuing to arm Ukraine. Now, we should hope they're correct because Russia's nuclear arsenal is the largest in the world. Um, estimated inventories in 2022, uh, so this year, were 5,977 nukes for Russia and slightly fewer than that for the United States. There are no other countries in the world which compare. Although given how damaging we know that you know 200 nukes would be or, or, or one nuke would be, I've never been that convinced as to how you know the stacking up of numbers um, is what we should be so worried about here. Paul, how worried should we be about the use of nuclear weapons? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is not in Putin's plan A or probably either his plan B or his plan C, but is there a possibility? How worried should we be about the breakout of a nuclear war? As of now, I'm not very worried, but there's always a niggle at the back. I think one's got to remember, you gave those figures at the height of the Cold War, the Americans and the Russians, the Soviets together share, shared over 60,000 nuclear weapons. 
the numbers have come down hugely, but they're still massive overkill even so. The other thing is that nuclear deterrence is not about mutually assured destruction. Within the frame of what is called nuclear deterrence, there have been all kinds of plans for nuclear use. I mean, Britain took tactical nuclear weapons to the Falklands Malvinas War, for heaven's sake. I remember going to a NATO briefing. They did it for academics back in the 1980s and having a conversation over coffee with a, a German uh, officer in the nuclear planning group, the NATO nuclear planning group. And he was saying about, well, if the Russians, if the Soviets did come at us over the border in very large numbers, we'd start off by letting off five small airburst nuclear weapons. And that would stop them in their tracks. So the whole idea of nuclear war fighting is in the lexicon and in the thoughts, even now. It certainly was at the height of the Cold War. Having said that, looking at what some really people that I respect as experts in nuclear activities and nuclear planning are saying, the consensus tends to be that Putin probably has put the some of the nuclear forces on a slightly higher state of alert. It's what the United States would do, might have already done, but they won't announce it. It's almost routine in any conflict involving a very major opponent, particularly one armed with nuclear weapons. Beyond that, I think there's a, a large element of Putin basically reminding the West that, the, that Russia is a major power, and don't you forget it. I think the one implication is that if the level of armaments going into Ukraine increases more and more, and the Russians have greater and greater difficulty, the risk is of some sort of ultimatum. And that ultimatum would probably be used, as I said, the use of tactical nuclear weapons in um, Ukraine itself. It is possible, but we're a very long way from there. I think one shouldn't be too worried about it at the present time. But any conflict which involves very powerful states, you've always got to remember the other issue of accidents, incidents, and mavericks, that AIM, that nasty acronym which we have. So I'm sorry, it's a bit of a long-winded answer. I'm certainly not remotely as worried as I was at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I can well remember, I'm afraid. And you also find that uh, what really was happening then was even more scary than people realized at the time. We are not there, but there is a risk, which is why it is so vital to try and find another way through, where I suspect it may not be people with direct contact with Russia, it may be others as well. What do you think of the response of the West so far? Because, I mean, obviously the West have escalated their response, but most people would argue, or lots of people would argue, that was very much in response to, to Russia escalating their actions. So to remind our audience, the, the West have frozen central bank assets for the Russian government. That's collapsed their currency by around 30%. That will cause massive inflation in Russia, make it much more difficult to get imports. We've also seen countries which have usually had a policy of not sending weapons to war zones, such as, well, namely in this case, Germany. Germany is now sending lethal weapons to Ukraine. Lots of actions which are tougher, really, than anyone was expecting. Now, lots of people saying this is great. This is the support that Ukraine needs. The Ukrainians are definitely asking for it. There are worries that if you push Vladimir Putin into a corner, that could lead to some very dangerous results. I mean, what's your take on, on the Western response so far? I think there are three things. Firstly, and this is not just the West, but this is absolutely an era of now thrive the armourers, as Shakespeare put it. There's going to be immense amounts of money made in Russia and across Western countries in this renewed arms race. This is actually going on almost day by day. But your specific question, well, I think what, what we're seeing is a misperception again on the Kremlin side that there's been greater unity of purpose, both within the EU group 
and within NATO. I think they're expecting more divisions. I think probably the shock has come in which even Orban in Hungary has gone along with what other countries, other countries like Poland are doing. So there's a, a misinformation, a misinterpretation, I shall put it, there. And that is continuing. I think, I suspect, I don't know, I've only talked to one person in Russia recently in the last few days. I suspect, though, uh, that some of the other issues may be affecting the ordinary Russian as well. I mean, I do know from somebody I was listening to yesterday in St. Petersburg that essentially there is incredible control of the state media and very tough control of any kind of dissent. And the idea is that this is still just a, a military operation, a necessary one, and there'd be no casualties on the Russian side so far. But that is not going to hold. I think it's, it's curiously, it's some of the other things, like being excluded from major football occasions, sporting occasions, cultural occasions, will have an effect. As to your specific point on the sanctions themselves, they have been pretty heavy, but in some ways Russia under Putin was prepared for this, both by the 600 plus billion dollars uh, reserves that they built up and also the, the capability on the oil and gas side. So it is probably the case that the sanctions, the routine economic sanctions, would take some months to have a particular effect. And on the key issue of what happens to oil and gas exports, if they were basically to find they couldn't export them to Europe, well, there are other willing takers, including China for starters, which again brings you back to the point of how significant China might be, which is complicated, of course, because of China's attitude to Taiwan. So again, I'm afraid an unclear answer, a rather rounding answer, but the indications are that so far, the actual level of sanctions in all the different forms has been higher and more united than detached observers would have expected from the West at the present time. Let's briefly finish by talking about China directly. Um, yeah. We had a Ukrainian guest on last week who actually, they thought that it would be the the way that China goes that could be completely crucial here. They surprised many people by abstaining at the UN on a motion sort of condemning Russia. People were expecting them to vote against. Is is there a chance that Putin might have overplayed his hand and the Chinese will, will abandon him? It is certainly possible. I haven't read the details. You probably have. I think it was the New York Times that's publishing a piece that there have been four well-known, well-respected and senior Chinese historians who penned a letter saying that basically China would be making a mistake in going in too closely with Russia. I hope I'm paraphrasing that accurately. Other people who followed it will have done. I think that if you could imagine the situation deteriorating further, specifically uh, with China, with Russia using heavier and heavier methods, I think you're going to see two impacts there. One with China, but also within Russia, given all the connections, you know, the millions of people who are Ukrainians, the many millions of people, possibly several ten, tens of millions of people who have direct family connections with Ukraine. And the more that you have a tougher stance, the more there is terrible loss of life, the more we get the pictures of buildings being destroyed and the rest, the more that will go down very badly within Russia to an extent among the minority and the no. But also China will be concerned not so much with what Russia is doing, but the impact on global public opinion and the fact if Russia ends up as a major pariah, quite a lot of that will stick on China as well. So yes, I think that is an important thing that you can never know with Beijing because obviously it plays things so cautiously and she himself is in such a position of power. Paul Rogers, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I'm sure we'll speak to you soon. Always very, very insightful. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Let's go to our next story. Vladimir Putin has blamed Liz Truss for provoking his threat to use nuclear weapons. A spokesperson for the Kremlin told a press briefing. Statements were made by various representatives at various levels on possible altercations or even collisions and clashes between NATO and Russia. We believe that such statements are absolutely unacceptable. He says, I would not call the authors of these statements by name, although it was the British Foreign Minister, a very um, unique way of releasing statements. It's not entirely clear which of Truss's comments the Kremlin spokesperson was referring to. One potential source could be this from Sky News. But we're not just fighting for the people of Ukraine and the sovereignty and self-determination of Ukraine. This uh, long-running conflict is about freedom and democracy in Europe. Because if we don't stop Putin in Ukraine, you know, we are going to see others under threat. The Baltics, Poland, Moldova, and it could end up in a conflict with NATO. Many news outlets are also associating the Kremlin's comments with this statement Truss made to the BBC on Sunday. President Zelensky has, has asked for people from abroad to, to join an, an international force. Would you support that? I, I, do, uh, I do support that. And of course, uh, that is something that people can make their own decisions about. But you support, they, are, you they are fighting, the people of Ukraine are fighting for freedom and democracy, not just for Ukraine, but for the whole of Europe, because that is what President Putin is challenging. And absolutely, if people want to support that struggle, I would support them in doing that. So you support Britain, people from Britain, going over to Ukraine to help in the fight? Absolutely, if that's what they want to do. Those latter comments followed a call from Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky for the formation of an international brigade of volunteers to fight the Russian invasion. A statement published on the president's office website read, This is the beginning of a war against Europe, against European structures, against democracy, against basic human rights, against a global order of law, rules and peaceful coexistence. Anyone who wants to join the defence of Ukraine, Europe and the world can come and fight side by side with the Ukrainians against the Russian war criminals. Ash, personally, I would take Vladimir Putin blaming Liz Truss for his nuclear escalation with a pinch of salt. I think he's probably, you know, trolling her, trying to divide the Western allies. But what did you make of her comments? So the first thing I'd say is that I do agree with you, which is you have to take these comments with a big pinch of salt. I think the reason for Vladimir Putin's nuclear escalation, the talk of ratcheting up those tensions, it's intended as a big keep out sign to the West. He's realized that this conflict is going to be a lot more protracted and difficult than the simple special operation that he had intended. The resistance from Ukraine is a lot fiercer than anticipated. And there's also a lot more coordination between the EU, NATO powers, financial institutions, cultural institutions, the US as well, than he had expected. So the ratcheting up of, of the nuclear threat is a way of saying, look, stay the fuck out of this one. And I do think that there is an attempt here to drive a bit of a wedge between Liz Truss and the approach taken by, for instance, France and Germany. Liz Truss has always been a bit of an outlier. Now, in one case, in terms of Liz Truss consistently saying, look, there is going to be an invasion of Ukraine, her being an outlier and very different from the sort of attack which is being taken 
by Schultz and Macron meant that she ended up being correct. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of Liz Truss. I do think that she's a political lightweight and she's a bit of a joke. But in this instance, she was definitely correct. She had read the climate better than her counterparts in France or in Germany. This talk, however, of British people uh, being able to volunteer to fight alongside Ukraine against Russia is a really big departure from British government policy. You only have to look at how those who volunteered to fight ISIS were treated to see just how much of a departure that it is. You had the arrest of a man who sent £150 to his son, who had volunteered to go and fight alongside the Kurds. He was arrested on terror offences. You also had the conviction of another man on terror offences who had gone to fight alongside the Kurds. You had the systematic harassment of people who had signed up to fight ISIS. Now, ISIS obviously weren't a global power. It was a similarly moral distinction in terms of these guys are definitely bad and they're doing a bad thing. It wasn't a political climate of sympathy with ISIS or looking for a diplomatic solution. But the reason why the people who'd volunteered to go and fight against them were criminalized in the way that they were was because it was simply at odds with UK government policy. And also because they were signing up to fight alongside the Kurds, that put them at odds with a fellow NATO member and ally, Turkey. So it is a very big departure from what's come before. And I don't think it's surprising that the Russian government have tried to portray this as NATO escalation, as a reason to justify a more belligerent stance on their part. But it is quite a big departure from what came before. I think this is going to be a theme that we're coming back to a lot, which is that in this case, I mean, I think if you want to go fight for the Ukrainians, you're incredibly brave. And I'm not angry at Liz Truss for saying that she'd be happy for for you to do that, but it's completely different to how they responded, as you say, Ash, to to the Kurds. And as you say, it's it's not because of any difference when it comes to the morality of this. It's about who were the allies. And as you say, Turkey were the ally in that case. I want to show a clip of one of Liz Truss's colleagues. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has taken a slightly less gung-ho approach when it comes to encouraging people to go to fight in Ukraine. Would you want untrained blokes and women alongside you? Untrained blokes? Well, first of all, let's remember, untrained people in Ukraine are fighting the Russian army, and some of them successful. There are men and women joining up in bravery and making a difference. Some of their heroic uh, battles have been partly because the Russians cannot understand, funnily enough, that people don't like their country invaded. So they have a role. But no, my advice to Britons listening to this is, look, there are lots of ways to help the Ukrainian fight. First and foremost, you can donate to the Ukrainian embassy and they use that money to purchase lethal and non-lethal aid to help and other areas, you know, whether it's medicines or humanitarian. That's the first way you can help. The second way, if you want to help in, in voluntary organizations dealing with refugees or anything else, they're all out there. If you are really determined to go, you will be breaking foreign office uh, travel advice. But if you are determined to go, my advice is be trained, be someone who has an experience in the armed forces, Don't be a serving member of the armed forces because you'll be deserting. But be a trained person because it is very dangerous and I don't want to see British people killed uh, any more than I want to see Ukrainians. It does seem as if there are trained people answering the call. Ukraine's ambassador to the UK has said that he's been overwhelmed by offers to help. President Zelensky says he is uh, establishing an an international legion. Uh, Would you ask foreign citizens to go to Ukraine and fight? 
it was already done because we have overwhelming number of people coming and just just bombarding us, staying in front of the embassy and requiring, demanding to, to allow them. We, we, we don't want, you know, to, 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 you know, to break any, any laws, especially international laws, but most of these people who are coming, they're Ukrainians. They have a right to come home at any moment and fight. And you have a lot of people who are well, You wouldn't up. believe it's not just Ukrainians. Everybody from all the nations, you're just, just asking how we can get in. The Daily Mail has reported that volunteers are already on their way to Ukraine. A commander of the Georgian National Region has recruited a team to fight alongside the Ukrainians. He told the Daily Mail, I have a very big group of Britons, around 60 travelling to Ukraine to join up with my Georgian National League unit. They are travelling by car from the UK and will cross over at the Polish border. I am expecting them here with equipment and supplies in the next few days. They are mostly guys who have fought with me in Ukraine before, but there are also new recruits as well. He says we will provide them with training and weapons and they are coming from London and all over Britain. Their background is former British Army and Special Forces and they are good fighters. They can be trusted to take on the Russian aggressors and most importantly win. What I want to stress is that none of them are getting paid. They are not mercenaries. They are all volunteers. He added that he expected the number of volunteers to grow to 500 in the next few days, a significant number. And for those who want to help without taking up arms, the Vice Prime Minister of Ukraine has suggested another avenue. He said, we are creating an IT army. We need digital talents. All operational tasks will be given here. There will be tasks for everyone. We continue to fight on the cyber front. The first task is on the channel for cyber specialists. Ash, I mean, obviously, I mean, I do have a great deal of respect for people who put their lives on the line in, in this situation to take on an aggressor and defend country's freedom. At the same time, I mean, I was listening to the radio the other day, they were speaking to a, a Ukrainian guest and the Ukrainian, because obviously, you know, a few Ukrainians are going. And I was just so, so grateful that, well, that I'm not Ukrainian in that sense, because they, they, they felt mm. this sort of special question of, are you going to go and fight for your people? It's like, oh my, I, I cannot imagine what I would do in that situation. Like, I just find it so intensely terrifying. I mean, I, I don't know, how many people do you think will, will likely take up this call? I think maybe less than the media suggests for the very good reason that war is absolutely terrifying. And most people who don't have combat experience don't feel that they necessarily have the skills to offer that would make them useful. They just feel that maybe they'd get in the way. I do think, however, there's, you know, there's always a complication. There's always a wrinkle. There's always an element of double-edged sword here. Because on the one hand, there are so many examples that we can name of international volunteers going to fight for democracy against an authoritarian force in ways which were undoubtedly force for good. You can think about the international brigades during the Spanish Civil War. You can think about the volunteers much more recently who went to go fight ISIS alongside the Kurds. But there are also examples where there has been an element of backlash from that. One very recent example of that is, of course, Salman Abedi, who was the Manchester Arena bomber. He was somebody who was from the UK and then went with his father to Libya to fight as part of a jihadist group against uh, Muammar Gaddafi. So he came back with more combat training than he had left with, and that made him much more dangerous. And he ended up doing something absolutely dreadful on British soil that involved the civilian loss of life. So you have to, I think, be able to make judgments 
on the basis of who's going and for what reason. I think for the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians, this is a very straightforward moral choice, which is do you go and fight alongside your family, your friends, your community against very naked war of Russian aggression. It's a very straightforward moral choice. But then there are much smaller elements, a minority of people, but this is still something which is important to think about, who perhaps are part of the nationalist far right, probably not even Ukrainian, who find the idea of violence in itself attractive. Now, if even there are a handful of members of the British far right volunteering because they see something like the Azov Battalion and they see that as an attractive and option which is in ideological alignment with themselves, well, that is something which then becomes quite worrying, even just from a very selfish British perspective. So I think that there are really difficult choices being presented to Ukrainian people, people with dual nationality. I think that there is also very good moral reasons to want to go and fight against a war of aggression, an invasion which is being motivated primarily by expansionism and chauvinism. But I think that part of the job of journalists is to also point out this unintended effect of blowback sometimes. And for governments, their responsibility is to think about how you best mitigate against that. No, I do think that is an important point. And I suppose a thing, a thing we need to come keep coming back to is like, to not get like, war is not romantic. War is, is really, really, really horrible. So this sort of idea that you can go and fight for freedom. I mean, on one level, there are people going to fight for freedom and play to them, but there are kind of more reasons to not go to war than there are to, to go wherever you're from. Next story. Home Secretary Priti Patel has announced that Britain will accept up to 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. They'll be subject to tight conditions, though. We are in direct contact with individuals and we've also lowered various requirements and salary thresholds so that people can be supported. Where family members of British nationals do not meet the usual eligibility criteria but pass security checks, UK visas and immigration will give them the permission to enter the UK outside the rules for 12 months and is prioritising all applications. Given British nationals and any person settled in the UK, give it, sorry, given British nationals and any person settled in the UK, the ability to bring over their immediate Ukrainian family members. Through this extension alone, Mr. Speaker, I can confirm that an additional 100,000 Ukrainians will be able to seek sanctuary in the UK with access to work and public services. This is a pretty basic commitment. All that Patel is promising is to make it easier for the dependents and families of British nationals in Ukraine to come to Britain. That's a far cry from opening our doors to all those fleeing war. For context, it's estimated that half a million Ukrainians have already left the country with the EU, calculating that 7 million will soon have been displaced. Though unimpressive, it nonetheless sounds better than the government's previous stance when a question about Ukrainian refugees was raised with Home Office Minister Kevin Foster. This is how he replied. Hi, Luke. As you will be well aware, there are a number of routes, not least our seasonal worker scheme, you will recall from your shadow DEFRA days, which Ukrainians can qualify for alongside the family route for those with relatives here. 
That tweet has now been deleted. And as Byline Times' Adam Bienkov discovered this afternoon, if Pretty Patel's statement represents a change in tone, it means very little in practice. So he tweeted, the government appeared to suggest today that up to an additional 100,000 Ukrainians would be let into the UK. Again, that isn't true. The Home Office now saying that figure refers to changes announced two weeks ago. Ash, how do you rate our government's response so far to the creation of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees by Russia's invasion? I mean, this sums up the British approach entirely. They want to stand with Ukraine insofar as it serves their geopolitical interests vis-a-vis Russia. But when it comes to actually helping Ukrainian people displaced by war, they're like, sorry, new phone, who dis? They are absolutely doing the bare minimum that they can get away with. And the concessions which are being made in terms of allowing Ukrainian asylum seekers to come here to work and to have access to public services, that's because of the sheer amount of public pressure that they're under. It's kind of a unique situation in terms of the political climate to have so many people be so receptive to the idea of taking more refugees. Because one of the things about this country is that we are totally delusional about the number of asylum seekers that we actually have to process. We process far fewer asylum applications than Germany, than France, than Greece, and far fewer than the countries which immediately border nations where there is currently conflict taking place. So the number of asylum seekers in the UK absolutely minuscule compared to countries like Jordan and Lebanon. Here, of course, I'm talking about conflict in the Middle East. But that level of hostility that we have in this country, it is completely out of touch with the reality of how many asylum seekers were actually taken in. So one of the things I think that's important to bear in mind is that these concessions have been made because of public opinion being very much with the Ukrainian people. Um, had, I think, there been better coverage of what was going on in the Middle East and our role in destabilizing the region and our responsibility for taking more displaced people, maybe you would have a very different kind of political media environment when it comes to thinking about how we approach asylum seekers and refugees who aren't from European countries. The last thing I'll say is that this concession being made about Ukrainians being able to work and have access to public funds that is essentially created, if it's true, by the way, what Priti Patel is saying, that creates a two-tier system of asylum because any other asylum seeker isn't entitled to work here. So if it's good enough for the Ukrainians, why isn't it good enough for everybody? How we welcome asylum seekers, how we support them, the extent to which we allow them to integrate into our society and not feel like they're total pariahs, that shouldn't be different on the basis of race or nationality. That is a theme which is very much going to be the theme of our our next section. The invasion of Ukraine is a war crime and its people face a humanitarian catastrophe. That means it's good that Western media are rallying to Ukraine's support. Ukrainians deserve our total solidarity. At the same time, many have contrasted how coverage of this war differs from other recent conflicts. During the Syrian civil war, there were rarely, if ever, 24-hour news 
coverage. And if during the illegal invasion of Iraq, you put an Iraqi flag in your Twitter handle, you'd probably get a call from Prevent. So why the difference here? Well, perhaps the biggest reason is that opposition to war is easier when your country is not the one doing the invading. There's another possible influence, though. It's race. This is how an ITV correspondent explained why Ukraine's plight matters. Now the unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. This is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. No more commentary was even needed there. A correspondent on CBS made the implication even more explicit. Now with the Russians marching in, it's changed uh, the calculus entirely. Uh, tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. So it's partly human nature, but they are not in denial. And with all due respect, it's relatively civilized, relatively European, not like Iraq or Afghanistan, where you might expect or even hope these things would happen. <sighs> Awful. Guests as well as hosts intimated towards a racial element here. Speaking to the BBC, this is what a former Ukrainian deputy chief prosecutor had to say. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed, children being killed every day with Putin's missiles and his helicopters and his rockets. The Telegraph didn't want to be outdone, unsurprisingly. They printed this from Daniel Hannan. They seem so like us. That is what makes it so shocking. Ukraine is a European country. Its people watch Netflix and have Instagram accounts, vote in free elections and read uncensored newspapers. War is no longer something visited upon impoverished and remote populations. It can happen to anyone. That's just such an anodyne thing to say. The fact that Ukraine is being invaded doesn't mean it can happen to anyone. But then also Iraqis have Instagram accounts. Ash, I have to say, I wasn't sure whether to do this section because I don't think uh, we shouldn't... Our analysis of this conflict, this unjust brutal war of aggression shouldn't be, oh, the Ukrainians have white privilege. They, they don't in this situation, obviously. At the same time, I mean, it can't really be ignored how this conflict is being treated so differently to others. And then you've, you've seen there those pundits and hosts sort of making it pretty explicit what's going on here. I think that you're right to say that the language of white privilege has no relevance here when we're talking about the situation of Ukrainians. But what we can do is talk about how much longer standing racist narratives have an impact on how this conflict is being understood. And then also what's been going on at the border in terms of African students, South Asian students being treated so terribly. So the first thing is talking about conflict and war as though there is something natural about it when it comes to certain countries certain cultures and certain ethnicities, that is the very essence of racism. There is nothing about dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin, which is naturally prone to war. It is just as unnatural to take a life in Afghanistan as it is to do so in Ukraine or in Britain, for that matter. It is just as much an assault on 
humanity and the essential human dignity which all people have and which should be respected for all people. But the reason why there is this framing is because part of the post-Cold War settlement was creating this bubble where what was going on in the relative stability within the West, it came at the cost of destabilizing, plundering, bombing, and exploiting countries which were poorer than ours, which were in the Middle East or in Africa or in Asia, all right? That was the post-Cold War settlement. It was also, for that matter, a large part of the pre-Cold War settlement as well in terms of empire. It's a way of justifying the violence which sustains a particular international order by saying that this violence is a natural characteristic of these culturally or racially inferior people. Now, one of the problems with that logic is that it never does stay contained to the wild wilderness of Africa or Asia or wherever else it might be. Throughout history, you have seen that logic of inferiority coming back to Europe in a way which means that violence ultimately ends up visited on European populations as well. That's one way through which you can understand what happened during World War II. That was part of the racist logic of Hitler. Part of it was the territorial expansion, which took place in France and Britain's imperial colonies. And then another way was looking at it in terms of these people, be they Jewish people, be they Roma or disabled people, they're here and they're disgusting, they make us weak, we've got to get rid of them. That was absolutely part and parcel of what was going on elsewhere in terms of racist hierarchies, segregation and empire. It came back to Europe. And so I think that one of the things that we always have to be aware of is that the minute you draw this uncivilized, civilized distinction, you do it on the basis of what you think of as immutable racial, cultural differences, at some point that boomerang is going to come back. That violence is going to come back. It's going to be visited on people who you thought were inside that walled jurisdiction of civilized, of white, of European, of blonde hair, blue eyes. Because one thing that we know about violence is that it never, ever stays contained in one zone for long. When they don't want to make this about like race, everyone says, oh, it's about development. Is it a development? Is it a developed country where they live like us or are they dirt poor? Iraq has been a richer country than Ukraine for 25 of the last 30 years. So Ukraine overtook Iraq in sort of 2015, 2016. So presumably when that was sort of ISIS time. So this idea that, oh, these are white civilized people and all the brown people, these are people who didn't even have an economy to destroy. No, Iraq did have an economy to destroy. They were Their, their GDP was actually twice the level of, of Ukraine's in 2001. So again, unconditional solidarity for the Ukrainians against this sort of brutal war of aggression from Iraq. But let's try and have some consistency. And consistency is the point of our next section. Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. His unprovoked war against Ukraine is a war crime and it should be condemned as such. However, some of the people who are speaking out against this illegal war are hard to take seriously. Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic, basic point there. Well, um, I agree. It is certainly against 
every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's, he's managed to unite NATO in ways that I didn't think I would ever see again after the end of the Cold War. The host there was right. A war of aggression against a sovereign nation is a war crime. This was established in the Nuremberg trials following World War II. Their judges ruled a war of aggression is essentially an evil thing. To initiate a war of aggression is not only an international crime, it is the supreme international crime differing only from other war crimes in that it contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. So a war of aggression, it's not just a war crime, it's the supreme war crime because it contains all others within it. When you launch a war of aggression, other war crimes will inevitably follow. That means the host was right. It also means the guest who nodded along sagely was also right. The problem, the guest, like Putin, is also a war criminal. Condoleezza Rice was national security advisor to George W. Bush when he launched the war in Iraq, a war she still defends to this day. And that war was illegal. Don't believe me? Asked the man who was chief prosecutor for the United States at the aforementioned Nuremberg trials. Benjamin D. Ferenc said in 2006 that Bush should be tried for war crimes. And expanding on that statement, he wrote, A prima facie case can be made that the United States is guilty of the supreme crime against humanity, that being an illegal war of aggression against a sovereign nation. The United Nations Charter has a provision which was agreed to by the United States, formulated by the United States, in fact, after World War II. It says that from now on, no nation can use armed force without the permission of the UN Security Council. And he said they can use force in connection with self-defense, but a country can't use force in anticipation of self-defense. Regarding Iraq, the last Security Council resolution essentially said, look, send the weapons inspectors out to Iraq, have them come back and tell us what they've found, then we'll figure out what we're going to do. The US was impatient and decided to invade Iraq, which was all prearranged, of course, so the United States went to war in violation of the Charter. In light of all of that, let's watch that clip one more time. Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic, basic point there. Well, um, I agree. It is certainly against every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions mm -hmm. and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's, he's managed to unite NATO in ways that I didn't think I would ever see again after the end of the Cold War. Ash, how do you possibly respond to that, to Condoleezza Rice nodding along when someone is saying that a war of aggression or a war against a sovereign state is, is, a, is a war crime? She's like, yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it's beyond brass neck, isn't it? It's just absolutely beyond brass neck, absolutely beyond galling, absolutely beyond ironic. Because once you start looking at the similarities between Putin's war of aggression and the US's war of aggression, you really start, you're unable to come to anything other than a conclusion that the West is at least partially responsible for creating the conditions internationally 
where Putin's war of aggression it can happen. So number one, the idea that this is a special operation rather than a declaration of war on a sovereign nation. That is something which is completely shared in the Putin handbook and the Bush handbook. In fact, both the Russian government and the US government at the time of the Iraq war cited the same article, Article 51, the right to self-defense, in terms of justifying their invasion of a sovereign state which did not attack them first, right? They both tried to play this game of saying that, well, an anticipation of an attack is the same thing as being under attack. Uh, you know, that was the role of the dodgy dossier, the false allegation that there would be WMD, which could strike in 45 minutes. That's also the same thing in terms of the propaganda that's going out in Russia, which was suggesting that there are attacks by Ukrainians against separatists in in the Donbass and that there could be, you know, attacks against Russia itself, right? Same playbook. The idea that instead of framing it as a war between sovereign nations, but a war against terrorists, criminals, people who sit outside of the usual rules of war. Again, that is a completely shared tactic between Putin, Bush and Blair. Blair, of course, in 2014 was saying, look, forget about what Putin's doing in in Ukraine. We should be allying with him in the fight against Islamic terrorism. All right. So again, this tells you a little bit about something of the sort of coordination between these powers, not simply thematic resonances. So it's it's completely insane to me that you can have Condoleezza Rice nodding along when somebody else is saying, of course, a, a declaration of war, war of aggression against a sovereign state is crime against humanity. Because if she recognized that in any meaningful sense, she would have to look at her own role in similar war crimes against Iraq. Absolutely. And she's not going to be keen to do that, is she? We're going to wrap up there, though. I should say, though, Ash, this is your last Tisky Sour before a book leave, isn't it? It is. So I'm going to be um, away for two months so I can finish writing my book and then I will come back better than ever and a lot less stressed out. But I will miss doing this on Mondays. Well, I'll, miss, I'll miss you for two months on Mondays. I'm not sure how much are you allowed to tell our audience what your book's about? Okay, so I can I can I can go into a fair amount of detail. It's called Fabulous. Minority Rule. It is about culture war, how it works, and why it's happening. And maybe if I get any good ideas, how we can find our way out of that swamp as well. But I'm not promising anything because I'm not a very constructive person. But I'm great at diagnosing problems. Well, I'd say we'll keep your your seat warm for you, but I mean you do it from your house. Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.